Good morning. How we doing? I'm good. Jesus. I'm grateful for this place. I'm grateful for the people who gave and worked and took their time and their treasure and their talent to provide this space for us. I ask today that you'd repay them good measure, pressed down, running over. I pray that whatever happens on this little piece of real estate, on your good earth, I pray that it would bring glory to you. It would honor the purpose for which people sacrificed and gave. Protect us from ourselves. Protect us from this culture that wants to crush us, conform us, change us. May be, this be the crucible where you burn away the garbage of this world from our souls. I pray as we study that you would come in the volume of the book that it would declare you. There's one hero when it's you. There's one source, there's one in whom all the promises are yes and amen, and it's you. So may your name be high and lifted up this day in this service, and we ask this in your name, the only name by which men must be saved, the name that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before, the name Jesus. We pray in that name, amen. 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 So I'm gonna talk about a city. Let me see if you can guess the name of this city. This city lacked protection. The normal protection for a city was gone. Police had been defunded. Safeguards for children were systematically dismantled, exposing them to gross depravity, body mutilation, and death. They were being indoctrinated to a new kind of morality one not based on truth, but one based on what you felt. Live your truth. What you feel is your truth. Marriage was on the ropes. People were unequally yoked. Immorality was being mainlined into bedrooms because spouses were being entertained by it. More and more were agreeing about new definitions of marriage. Old definitions were heteronormative and patriarchal and oppressive. This is the new way. It was a political mess. The head honcho actually got his position illegally. He was less a ruler and more a crime boss. Legislation was being pushed by a cultural mob, not by correct truth. Economically, they were running on empty. Massively high interest rates, foreclosures, Downtown was being taken over by outsiders who'd moved up and taken up residency. They flaunted the laws of the people. And the people were too afraid to speak or stand up because they'd be shouted down and called haters or unloving. The government was becoming an enemy. If you dared to speak out, a file would be taken on you by the FBI. Media would attack you. 
Letters would be sent to the editor. You'd be turned into organizations that would dox you. Tell people your address. You could lose your job, be attacked, or your life could even be threatened. In the midst of this, the church was neutered. It had actually opened the church building up to be used by the very enemies of God. They'd invited in pagan speakers, crooked politicians. In the front of the door, they actually flew the very flag of godlessness. Doctrines of demons were not simply being allowed, but they were embraced as the new way forward, as examples of kindness. And the faithful were getting fewer and fewer as they disappeared and began to flee to other places where the tide had not swamped them. What city is that? Welcome to the book of Nehemiah. Times have not changed. We just repeat history, don't we? So we're going to spend, I don't know, the next three months probably in the book of Nehemiah looking at it because it's brilliant, it's appropriate, it's applicable. And it's how to revive and rebuild and renew a downtown space in between them. When a town gets down, what do you do? When it's been subject to failure after failure after failure, how do you do a U-turn with so much failure? Enter Nehemiah. His name literally means God who comforts us. Isn't that ultimately what we need in downtimes? We need the comfort of God. And if you don't know the place of Nehemiah in Scripture, I know it's in the middle of your book, but it's actually at the end of the Old Testament. It's the last history we have in the Bible of the nation of Israel. It's it. It's the last kind of, here it is, and then it goes silent for about 400 years in the Bible. So it's the last historic book of Scripture. And Nehemiah, here's what he's doing. He's going to complete a half-finished project by Ezra. So Ezra had come decades before him, and Ezra didn't finish what needed to be done in the city of Jerusalem. He's halfway done. Anyone here have any halfway done projects in your house? We're really good at starting, but not so good at finishing, right? Like sometimes you just don't know what to do. Like me cleaning the house, I'm, I'm a good starter, but I'm a terrible finisher. I'm like, are we done now? My wife is a phenomenal finisher. Like she will finish clean even before I'm done with a dish. Like, okay, I guess it's time to clean. All right, there you go. So Nehemiah is called to finish a job that another leader was not able to. And sometimes that's what we require. Sometimes someone can have a great vision and they can get things started and get the ball rolling, but you actually need a different skill set to finish things. You need more administration, less inspiration, more administration. And so that's where Nehemiah comes. He's got new energy and new ideas and new vitality. And here's what I love the most about Nehemiah. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's not a professional minister. He is a different kind of leader. I think today we need different kinds of leaders, that the tides have changed, and there's this kind of gig economy and political divisions and fracturing of people, and there needs to be raised up different kinds of leaders. And so Nehemiah comes in, and he is, this is the craziest part, he is a politician. He's chief of staff of the White House. Like, it's insane, right? And here's what's amazing about Nehemiah. He's a politician who keeps his hands out of our pockets. Add that to your list of biblical miracles. What? Mind blown, right? 
So we're gonna jump in and kind of introduce this book and do a quick fly over it because we're gonna spend about three months in it. So Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. We read this, and because the names are exotic, sometimes we'll look at this and we'll be like, what's going on here? It sounds crazy. Well, there's a real exotic side to this, but there's a real like normal side to it. We're given a date, we're given a location, and we're given a conversation. So it'd be like this. Here's the normal part. It'd be like tomorrow, the 27th of February, 2023, I'm in Grants Pass and I see someone who's returned from Baker City, Oregon. And I'm like, hey, man, I've got some friends that moved to Baker City. I know a guy owns a business up there. My wife's cousin, she has family up there. Hey, tell me about Baker City, right? Pretty ordinary. We have those conversations all the time. That's what this is. But there's a real exotic part of it because in this quick little verse, we're actually given a massive overview of a couple of hundred years of history in the city of Jerusalem, history of the people of God. So he first, he asks about the Jews who had escaped. If you don't know Israel's history, I'm gonna give you a very quick flyover. Israel got bad, really bad. And there are cycles of bad, no doubt. You can read them in Judges and you can read them in First and Second Kings. Right? And God was always faithful and kind and generous and long-suffering. But God does have a line in the sand. And that line in the sand, when you step over it, God says, okay, we're done. And Jerusalem stepped over the line in the sand. It's a king by the name of Manasseh. And here's how it goes. It's 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 5. Here's the line in the sand that Manasseh crossed. And he, this is Manasseh built altars for all the host of heaven. This is not the good host of heaven. This is the Ephesians 6, 12, principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. That's who he's building it to. In the two courts of the house of Yahweh, the very temple now has these images, right? These radars that are attracting demonic forces. And... He burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh. You jumped over the line. So here's what God says. And Yahweh said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, 
I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Line in the sand, you've gone too far. You can't kill my babies. You can't be bringing demonic junk into the church. Line in the sand. And these things should be warnings to all of us. Because what had happened at this people was this. They had become self-absorbed and selfish and myopic and terrible, but they believed this. We've got the temple, so we're good. We got the temple. We got God's temple, right? It's in this city. We're good. It's our lucky charm. Did not matter that they were unloving, evil, baby-killing, idolatrous, immoral people. That didn't matter. We got the temple. We're good. Lucky charm. Do we do the same thing? We're in America. Come on. We got it. We got the Constitution. We got our guns. Good luck. We got the House of Representatives, whatever it is. We can do the same thing. I don't think God cares. I think there is a line in the sand where God says, yeah, you can't hurt my image bearers anymore. You can't hurt my kids anymore. You can't do that anymore. And so they went across a line, okay? And we gotta be careful because I think right now, uh, the things that Manasseh got involved in, dark, dark wickedness, our kids are being groomed for the same thing. And it's coming through all these channels now, right? So I actually like just kind of collect these things, but this is from the Magical Kingdom. This is a new show by the Magical Kingdom. It's called Little Demon. Here's what the little demon is about. It's a little subtitle down here. After being impregnated by the devil, a reluctant mother and her antichrist daughter attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware. From the magical kingdom. How crazy is that? Right, this is Disney. I think Walt Disney's rolling over in his grave right now. We have to be very careful about entertainment. It's called enter for a reason. It, I call it enterbrainment. It enters your brain and begins to cement a certain way that you see life, especially when you're a kid, right? We used to have Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. Now we got Little Demon. Has it changed? Hmm. Might be changing. And it's grooming and aiming our kids for a certain direction. Even our language is deceptive now. So if I was new to English and I'm learning English for the first time and I heard this term and I just knew what the individual words meant, here's what I think. So have you ever heard of reproductive health? Now, if I was new to English and I saw reproductive health, what would I think that would mean? Well, making sure that women have the health care and the vitamins and the information to give birth to healthy babies, right? Reproductive health. What does reproductive health actually mean? The right to kill babies. Like it's our very words are betraying us now and words matter. They matter because they shape a collective conscience. So those same forces that pushed and pushed and pushed the line in the sand with Manasseh, they're still around today. And we gotta be careful. So here's what happens. God says, that's it. And he brings the most wicked empire on earth, the Babylonians, across the desert. And three different times they come to Jerusalem. And the third time they squash the city. 
You can read about it in Lamentations. The entire book is a eyewitness watching from a mountain the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple being burned to the ground. Their lucky charm didn't work. The wall being broken down in every way possible. And then the people being swept up in this dragnet as POWs and taken across the desert to now be slaves and concubines. Their boys castrated and became eunuchs for all kinds of really sick purposes. That's what happened when they crossed that line in the sand. So who are the escapers? Those that escaped the dragnet. So those that when the forces of Babylon came and they saw it happen, they managed to escape out. And they've been living in outposts and in caves and just trying to eke out a living now. So they'd be the ones that, that all the POWs who are in Babylon, they would remember them and they'd be kind of almost heroes, guerrilla warfare people, right? So Nehemiah, who has probably never been to Jerusalem, whose parents may have been sucked up in that dragon and brought across over, Nehemiah has grown up in Babylon, lived in Babylon, but he remembers and he goes, oh, those heroes. How are the heroes doing? My mom and dad told me about the escapers. How are they doing? That's the first group he asks about. Second group he asks about here is those that survived the exile. So these are ones that had gone into exile and apparently they'd come back. My guess is this. This is the group of people that decades earlier, when Ezra led a group across the desert, they came with Ezra. So we know we got the names of them. We'll actually read them. And these are the people that are like, hey, we're getting out of Babylon. They're high expectation, high energy. We're gonna get over to Jerusalem. We're gonna start something new. I don't want my kids being raised in this depraved culture. I don't want the indoctrination. I don't want the immorality. I don't want the craziness of Babylon. So I'm taking my kids and we're gonna move across 500 miles of desert and we're gonna get to Jerusalem and we're gonna start something new there. So Nehemiah knows that had taken place decades earlier and he's wondering how are they doing over there? In Jerusalem, being revived, they had vision. We actually took up an offering. We sent money over there. How'd that money do over there? So you got the escapers. And then you've got those that survived the exile and had gone back. And then lastly, he asked about Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the political capital, no doubt, of the nation. But it was much more than that. It was a place that God himself said, my name is gonna be in this city. It was the religious, political community. It was the center. It was Israel in a sense. How is Jerusalem? It'd be what the Vatican is for Catholics, what Azusa Street is for Pentecostals, what Costa Mesa is for Calvary Chapelers, what this place right here is for me. It's a place where you know and have seen God work and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And that's a special place in your heart. So while Nehemiah had never probably been to Jerusalem, had not been born in Jerusalem, he was still a citizen in heart of the city of Jerusalem. How's Jerusalem? Three different questions. How's it going over there? This is the answer. Verse three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down 
and its gates are destroyed by fire. Bad news. Bad news for the people and bad news for the place. For the people, he just says, they're in great trouble. And as we read through this book, we'll see it. There's financial trouble. There's marriage trouble. There was an enemy, and they were actually government-ordained enemy there that would attack them, mock them. You believe in Yahweh still? Look at his temple. Are you kidding me? Look at his city. Are you kidding me? Look at you as a nation. You don't even exist as a nation. What's wrong with you guys? Does it happen to us today? You believe in God? What are you, a caveman? What are you, from the Stone Ages? You probably also believe in a flat earth, don't you? You probably believe in creationism, that God just spoke and everything came out. Come on, science has buried God. Same mocking that happens today. Happens all the time, do you know that? Higher education is full of this mocking. Do you know that? Be careful, right? Here is a professor of Harvard, not just some podunk, you know, whatever. I didn't pull this from RCC or some smaller school. This is Harvard, one of the preeminent educational institutions in the world, okay? That's training up our future leaders. Listen to what Harvard professor Rorty says, quote, to arrange things so that students who have entered as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with a view more like our own, under the benevolent hirschcraft of people like me. Arrogant small? Hmm. And to escape the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents. I hope I'm a dangerous parent. I say, yes, I'm a dangerous parent, absolutely. Indeed, parents who send their children to college should recognize that as professors, now he's speaking of them as a group, we are going to go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable, end quote. Harvard professor Rorty. You can look it up if you want. It's a mocking. Look out. Be careful. Be careful. And if you pay attention to the media, right now there's this great media push on, hey, the church is done. Deconstructionism. Look out. It's over. Right? And certain churches that I look at and follow, I think, they probably are done because they don't believe in the Bible anymore. And they're redefining marriage and they're redefining sin as life and choices. Okay, now they're done. Great trouble and shame. Why were they in shame? Because they'd failed to rebuild Jerusalem. You ever fail at something big that you make these promises and maybe people give you money to do it and then you can't do it and you're like, oh man, it's shame. It hurts your soul. You're unsure of yourself then, right? You've lost confidence. You're like, oh man, if I failed at that, what good am I? Said so this great shame because they had promised, hey, we're gonna do this. We're gonna revitalize this city. We're gonna make sure we're gonna help rebuild a downtown. We're gonna rebuild it. And they'd failed with Ezra and their shame. And then he says, the place, 
Jerusalem. He says two things about it. It has a broken down wall and it has burned gates. First, a wall. If you know your history, for a city to survive, for most of human civilization, you required a wall. Because here's what a wall did for you. It kept out evil. Because it's only in the past century, even if you look at the 20th century, there was a lot of might is right. For most of human civilization, you know what it was? It was might's right. If you could take a man's wife, do it. If you could take a man's money, do it. If you could take a man's kid and enslave them, do it, right? If you could take his life, do it. That's been the marker of human civilization. There's only been, they say, 10% of human civilization has not had a war going on. So 90% has been, might is right. 20th century, might is right. Brutal, brutal. And if you did not have a wall, look out. They lived in a city with no wall. We think our world is scary today because we don't like whoever's in charge or a balloon flies over us. Listen, day to day, they're worried about their life. Are we gonna live today? Are we gonna have anything to eat today? This is a brutal, terrible, unlivable situation, right? It was unlivable. You couldn't go to downtown, it was too dangerous. We didn't know who'd be there. You couldn't make it to the temple, why? Because you might get robbed on the way there. It's brutal and bad. In fact, we'll get to chapter 11. In chapter 11, they do this straw, like they throw lots or they drew straws to see who had to stay in the city. If you drew the shortest straw, you were staying. Man, sorry about that, I'm out of here. That's how bleak the situation had become. And everybody else is just fleeing the city because it was unlivable, no wall, hardcore. So what God needed was a politician who would come and build a wall. How crazy is that, right? Like, what? Is that in the Bible? Yep, it is. It's right there. <laughs> That's this book. A politician is raised up who's unconventional and he builds a wall. Ah, yeah, yeah, I love God. <laughs> All right, so wall, there's no wall. And then birds were gate. The gates were burned. Here's what gates were. Gates were so you could control as a community. You could say, hey, as a community, we are going to control what comes in and what goes out of our city. It's not a free-for-all here. And we as citizens of our city are going to be the ones that decide what gates we open and what gates we close. But if you didn't have gates, then outside forces could just bring whatever garbage they wanted into your city and you had no power to stop them. Man, we don't have gates anymore, do we, as a community? It's like outside forces just bring their stuff in and you can't say no to it. What, you don't like education like this? Too bad, this is how it's going. Oh, okay. Oh, you don't like decriminalization of drugs? Too bad, this is how it's going. Oh, okay. You don't like land use laws? Too bad, this is how it's going. We control it, we'll tell you what you will do and you will like it. That's where we live today, no gates, right? You don't like valueless morality? Too bad, you're gonna teach it. You don't like reproductive health? Too bad, that's what we're doing. Doesn't it feel like that? Like as our own community, we no longer have the ability to decide what comes in and what goes out because there's no gates anymore. So I filled out some 
financial aid for one of my daughters. And we're, I was helping her because there's parts that you got to do, right? So we're filling it out. And I haven't done this for a long time. I did it in 1990 when I went to college. And I'm filling it out with her. And we're doing all this kind of stuff. And there came this section, and I'd never seen this before. And it asked, like, are you gay? Are you transgender? What's your intersectionality? How do you identify? Like all these questions. I'm like, what in the world? Okay. So she just answered them honestly, no money. And I said, man, do, do like normal lives, do normal people, do, 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 do we even, are, are we important? Do, do we even matter anymore? Because it feels like, it. yeah, nope, none for you. Okay, there you have it. For most of us in Grants Pass, what we stand for and what we hold dear, what we'd shut gates on, our Northern neighbors don't agree with us. And then we just get, okay, well, all right, I guess, you know, whatever, I guess we gotta do that. They force it on us. 20 years ago, it was different. You can move to Grants Pass or Josephine County or some kind of area, and you can kind of get away from it a little bit. You get away from the tide of those things. Not anymore, because now there's social media and there's internet, and there's this growing arm of control in our land that's different than I've ever seen. And they bust open your gates and they burn them down, I think on purpose, to bring in whatever they want to bring in. So the gates were burned down. And you just start reading this book, and which I've been doing for the last, really I was, wanted to teach it a year ago, but we didn't teach it on Wednesday night, so I said, I'm teaching it now. I've been reading it for a long time, and I keep going over like, man, this is us. Wow. Like unlivable parts now. Riverside Park. My first four kids, born 2000, 2002, 2005, 2007. I can't tell you how many times I took them to Riverside Park and we played. I had the excavator that was the, you know, the welded excavator and the tractor and uh, the lion that's the, you put your head in his mouth and it's scary for a while and then you get a drink of water and hey, it's not so bad. Like, it was great, right? Myron, born in 2013, has never played. I've never taken him to play at Riverside Park. Why? Because it's dangerous. It's unlivable. Things have changed. You've been told this is the way things are and that's too bad. Oh, okay. Wow, how is that? Public school, my first two daughters went to public school for a while. Had no problem with it. Then in 2016, I read that document from Salem that said, here's how education is going. This is seven years ago. I'm like, what? Oh, this is crazy. Affirmative care, this is crazy. Right? I, I don't think I'm letting any of them, my rest of my kids go. I'm just afraid now. So it's like brainwashing. Like, what? I don't agree with that. A couple Sundays ago, I was driving to church on a Sunday morning, and I was listening to Kajo. And if you don't know, there's a news segment right there, about 7.10 or so. And it's going over what happened Saturday. And it's just like, this crime happened, and this drug happened, and this accident happened, and this violence happened. And it's like, five minutes of it, I just shut it off. I'm like, ah, oh, I want to show up to church like Eeyore, like, ah, I want Tigger, right? I'm like, oh, okay, I got to change the station. Don't listen to Kajo in the morning. Listen to him later. Because it's like, it feels like Chicago. I'm just thinking, is, are we in Grand Pass or Chicago? This is insanity. Right? Our town is down. So I'm going to be honest with you for a second. Maybe this is therapy for me. It's free. <laughs> Cost you your time, but hey. And I've said this to elders and to my family and 
to people that pray, I've just said, listen, I'm losing my empathy. And Edgewater, we've tried to help people for a long time. Like warming centers, we did warming centers when no one did warming centers. We have did widow ministry, you saw it. Like we've always had a heart for the hurt and the hopeless. We did the drug thing out at Lund Road. We poured a lot of resources in there to help men addicted to drugs. You name it. We always had this heart for people that are hurt, but it feels like now I'm like, mm, I don't know anymore. I don't know. I don't know if I'm swinging somewhere. I don't know what's happening in my own soul, but it's, it's something I've been confessing that there's trash everywhere. There's just chaos. So three months ago or so on a, Wednesday night, beautiful fall evening, warm, awesome. Um, my wife is trying to pull out of here Wednesday night and she's gonna pull around and then head up the road and go on out. And when she gets down to the cul-de-sac there, someone had been camping down there for a while and the gal and the guy are in this massive fight. I mean, just duking it out, cussing and yelling at each other. And my wife's stuck there because they're right in the way. And the guy's trying to put his bike into the trunk of the car and the lady's just beating the snot out of him as he's trying to do that, right? So he's trying to get it in there and finally gets in the car and hey, my, my wife gets around them, pulls up here and Wednesday night, it, there's kids everywhere, right? It's like a refugee camp here, kids everywhere. So she's going slow, you know, 15 trying to go. And then she just sees these headlights and he peels out from there and there's cars lining both sides of this road. Little kid could be walking out, just all eyes up. She just said, I don't know how he, fast he was going, but I just got off the road. And just bikes hanging out the back, sparks are flying everywhere, Whoom! off he goes. And then the lady comes running, cussing, yelling up after him as well. Then my wife just said, I got to get out of here. And my heart as a pastor is, man, we can't have that here. We can't have the chaos here. It just can't happen. It's too dangerous. The stakes are too high. So I'm like, ugh, right? Ugh. For eight months, we worked with that couple with a fifth wheel. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with them. I can't, n- I, hundreds of meals we've given to them. They'll come on a Wednesday night and we'll send them home with a stack of meals, right? Help get them connected with people. Hey, we got a house for you. Well, utilities are paid for you. All you have to do is give up the rats, which there's a lot of them, and your cats. Crazy, the rats and the cats live together in that van. How crazy is that? I know in the kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb. This is a different kind of kingdom. Like cats and rats are laying down. Like, I don't know what this is, but this is not the kingdom. This is a different kingdom. All right. So one day they get out of here. We've helped them, invested in them, and talked with them, and counseled them, and they've been up here, just everything. And when they left, this is the trash they left us with. We took a picture of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, right? This is our neighborhood. Like, this is my neighborhood. This here, rat feces. That's how much, and that's just a fraction of it. This is my, I take this area personally. Like, hey, not in my yard. Not in my area. And so I just start feeling my heart just going, "Mm," just a tension, like, ah. So she came back. And I went out the moment she came back and I said, listen, we're not doing this again. You left this place trashed. This is, I consider this to be my house. You left my house trashed. We're not doing this again. Well, yeah, she started doing all the stuff. I said, no, we're not doing it again. You're not parking right here with all the rats in this van right next to our kitchen. You're not gonna bring those rats into my kitchen, right? She starts going off and yelling and cussing all that. No, I'm not doing it anymore. We did eight months of this. This doesn't work. We're not doing it again. You can't stay up here. 
And she left. Was that the right thing to do or not? I don't know. But I can feel my heart going, mm-mm. We tried as hard as we could. And all we got was, you left your trash everywhere. You could care less about us. So I don't know. If you are a prayer, here's what I ask you to pray. Pray that I balance well. Because I can feel my heart turning in a direction that I don't want it to turn to. I want to be one that's full of grace and full of truth and able to deal with each person exactly where they're at and not categorically like put them in this one day. Well, you're all this way, which is starting to happen in my soul. And I don't want it to happen. So if you're a prayer, pray for my soul, all right? So that's this city, Jerusalem. No jobs, no walls, burn gates, no leaders, no business opportunities, no future. That's the city. So let's take communion. I'm kidding. <laughs> Send you all out like, ah, oh, I hate my city. <laughs> we'll try to go a little positive at the end here. Couple things to note. They're giving us hints that it's not that bleak. So note number one, verse three. And they said to me, the remnant. There's always a remnant. Do you know that? There is always a remnant. The media always wants to have this, this narrative of, oh no, the church is gone. Look out, everyone's you know, deconstructing and apostasy and gone. They've been doing it for a long time. So perhaps you remember, if you're old enough, you remember this article from 1966. Is God dead? Because the church was dying, everyone's leaving. What happened right after 1966? The Jesus movement, Jesus revolution, a movie about it right now, one of the greatest revivals in American history. Right? Nah, never count out God. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nah, I'm not worried about it. Nah. I trust Jesus. He's the architect. He'll build it. No way, right? There's always a remnant. Elijah got all depressed and was like, I'm the only one. No one else is faithful. And what does God say? Bro, there's 7,000 just like you. Come on. Get out of your cave. Knock it off. I say, get ready. I think America is as primed as ever to see a reviving. That's what I believe. I think the people of God need to be ready. And we need to be a ready kind of people that stand out, that we're exiles and we're pilgrims and we do life differently. We live distinctly from what the world is living, right? That we are a prophetic burr in the government saddle. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's been that way for 2000 years. Prophetic burr to the government saddle. Now we're not doing that. That we need to have a sexual ethic that is absolutely biblical. We need to have morals that are grounded in God's word. We need to have our families raised as a holy, peculiar kind of people. Not worried about, oh, you're not cool or whatever. Who cares? Who cares? Why would you want to be cool? Why would you want that? That we begin to live such a way that the way that we look demonstrates what happens to a people whose king is Jesus. And they want the same thing, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Amen. We're a remnant. Number two, Nehemiah, super type A dude. We're gonna see it. As type A as they come, 
Great leader, great motivator, great inspirational guy. He shows up to this city that a bunch of cash had been given to, to rebuild it and to make it into a city, and it's just a half-finished project. What would you do in that situation? When people have just given up, they're spending the money on other things, what are you going to do? Bro, what is wrong with you? You idiots, man. What have you been doing for the last 30 years? Are you kidding me? Can't you move a rock? Nehemiah does not do that. He doesn't go up there and yell and scream and get angry at them. Because Nehemiah knows something that I forget. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And when I'm mad at a city, and I can be mad at a city, or I'm mad at a state, and I can get mad at a state, or I'm mad at a country, and I can get mad at a country, or I'm mad at a person, and I can get mad at a person, guess what? I've already lost the battle. Because the wrath of Matt Heverly does not work the righteousness of God. Hold on. Calm down. Stop. Well, Matt, what do we do instead? I'll give away next week. Verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We pray. And my heart gets right when I pray. I get mad and angry and shake my fist. My heart's not right. My heart gets right when I pray, and that's what Nehemiah does. And then fourthly, this whole book of Nehemiah, all it is, is Nehemiah's journal. Nehemiah's admin type A, he just writes notes in a journal, writes it down. God says, brilliant, that's going to be my period on the history of Israel in the Bible. Nehemiah, you're going in the best-selling book in history because you kept a journal. I think often we forget about how good God's been to us. I think we forget about, man, how dark things were for us because we're in the light now because we don't journal it down. And we don't write it down. Guess what? We have this tendency then to freak out in the moment. Ah, it's dark again. It's been dark a lot of times. It's okay because you serve a faithful, powerful God who works miracles. And so Nehemiah writes it down. He just writes down what's happening. And God says, brilliant. So I'd say journal. In fact, I had a bunch of these journals made up right here. And it says on the front of it, just the good hand of God is upon me. It's Nehemiah chapter two, verse eight. And so this journal is just remembering God's good hand on you. And if you're someone that says, I need to start journaling, we want to give one of these to you, but you better use it. Well, Matt, I use my phone. Fine. If you want China to know, go ahead. If you want the NSA to know, go ahead. I'm analog right here, right? I'll keep these things to myself between me and God. That's it, right? So you can grab one and just start remembering the good hand of God upon you. And what you realize is, wow, God's powerful. God's powerful. He can revive. He can rebuild. He can renew. That's what he can do. But my favorite part of Nehemiah is chapter 13. You got Nehemiah who... In biblical leadership, he's top five. Amazing. And guess what chapter 13 is? He fails. He fails. Why? Because that is the entire Old Testament. Abraham fails. Moses fails. David fails. Nehemiah fails. Ezra fails. Half-finished project. Why? Because you need someone greater than Nehemiah, someone greater than Abraham, someone greater than David, someone greater than Moses, you need Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't fix a wall around a city. Jesus fixes 
my heart. And ultimately, it's my heart that needs to be transformed. That's why even when I'm, no, man, I'm lacking right now in this way, I always am like, oh, praise God. I serve the king that holds my heart in his hand and he can reform it and he can remake it and that's what I'm gonna let him do. So that's why every Sunday we finish with communion because there's one hero and it's Jesus. There's one changer and it's Jesus. And so we come to him saying, Jesus, change us. And so today, I pray as we hold in our hands the elements to cause us to always get back to our focus, which, keep, which is keeping our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray as we eat today, you would be the bread of life for us. That where we feel like we are lacking or we have failed, or we are on empty, I pray today, Lord, that you would fill our tanks, that you would be our daily bread today. 